Uh, I have another uh, quick announcement. Uh, this next weekend, our, our annual Christian Thought Forum uh, is going to kick off on Friday night. You have in your bulletin, uh, not only is it printed in there, but you also have uh, this handout. We have two phenomenal speakers, uh, Josh Lingle and Greg Kolkel. Greg Kolkel is a Christian apologist, uh, radio talk show host, author, speaker, and the founder of um, the Christian apologetics organization, Stand to Reason. Uh, he's done a lot, of, a lot of public teaching. He's done a lot of public debates. Uh, just seems like a phenomenal guy. I'm excited to meet him. I get to sit down and have dinner with him. And of course, we'll all get to benefit from, uh, from his instruction. And, uh, and then Josh Lingle will also be coming uh, on Saturday. And he's the founder and executive director of I-Squared Ministries. Uh, and the aim of this ministry is to equip Christians to evangelize Muslims. Uh, and I, I thought you might like to hear this endorsement of him from Rabbi Zacharias, who said this, I don't know if there's a more strategic ministry involved now in our world than I-squared ministries to reach the Muslims. That's a huge endorsement, uh, and we get to have both of these guys uh, here this upcoming weekend, so I hope you will prioritize this time and be here at least for one, if not both, of the seminars Uh, There will be a question and answer time at the end of each one. So bring your hard questions, the ones that you don't know where to take them. And you can fire them away at these guys, and and I I trust that they'll give you a good answer. Also, if you need child care for that, child care is available ages 0 through 11. So if you've got a 0-year-old, bring your 0-year-old. But you need to call the church office by Wednesday just to let us know that you're, you're hoping to utilize that so we make sure that we... Uh, accommodate appropriately. So I hope that um, hope that's something you guys will prioritize. This is a privilege we have to have these guys up here. So let me pray for us, and uh, and then we will go to the word together. Let's pray. Father, we we say it often, and I don't want to take it for granted, but it really is a privilege to gather together as your people. Not because we did something so right, but because you came and rescued us. And we get to gather, as Pastor Josh said a moment ago, we get to gather in response to your grace. And we get to declare things that are true of you from our head and from our heart. And God, we come to not just to declare things, but also to sit under your declaration under the word of God. And we regularly bring ourselves here, Lord, as a pattern of our life because we know while we have been justified with you, we have not yet been sanctified and we have a lot of growth yet to go. And so we want us, Lord, we want you to teach us from your word. We want you to sanctify us, Lord, from your word and we know that your word is the truth. So we place ourselves under the authority of your word and I would ask God that that I, as the spokesman here today, would not be in the way at all, but would merely be a conduit for the teaching that comes from your Holy Spirit. God, illuminate your text to us. Humble us in advance that we might be willing to receive it. Lord, we have a sobering passage this morning. It confronts us with the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. So Lord, give us courage to see what you would say to us. Prepare us for a response, not just of verbal uh, worship, but a life 
of obedience and worship through that. So we ask for your help now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, If you'd open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, one of the scarier chapters in all of Scripture, especially for the preacher. Ever notice that when you clean your house, you ever notice how good you feel after doing so? Can I get an amen to that? Or even better, if somebody else cleans your house for you, how good you feel when somebody else has done this, yeah. I don't mean just a quick spruce up. You know, we, we all know how to spruce up a space for guests coming so that we can give the appearance of cleanliness. I mean clean, deep clean, where you actually pick things up and move things and clean under them and around them. When the whole space is clean and then your objects are placed back in there. Uh, and I don't know about you, but when you do this, I mean, obviously the air smells fresher, Right? And then a weird thing happens, and maybe I'm alone in this, but it almost seems to me that the air around your space seems to be like more active. Am I just being funny and sort of feng shui here about this? I don't know. I don't mean to be all new agey, but it just seems to me that when things are clean, it not only smells better, but there just is a good feeling, a good vibe uh, around you. Uh, Just being in clean space feels good. Uh, If you take one space and you clean it thoroughly and you organize it well, uh, it can actually inspire you to go on to the next space and clean it and organize it well. Uh, The old proverb goes, cleanliness begets cleanliness and disorder begets disorder. Uh, I read an article in the News Miner the other day and there's, um, there's a woman here in town who offers her services to uh, basically help you clean your space and then organize your space so you can keep it clean. And I thought, man, what does this woman charge? Because I have an office that could use a little bit of help. Uh, if you walk in there, it will look orderly. Uh, but I know where the hidden corners are. And I know, I know where the ugliness uh, resides. Uh, and as we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 today, what we see is that God himself desires a clean house. And by that, I mean his temple, which is, which is us. It's not the walls of the church. It's the people of the church. Uh, Paul has already described the gathering of believers in Corinth as a sacred temple. And God desires that his temple, that his people, his house, would be clean and pure and holy. And it is a sobering thing to know because we are anything but. Um, This became a really critical matter for uh, the Corinthians here. uh, Because as we've already learned about this this town, and uh, Corinth was the sin city of the day, right? Uh, The Vegas slogan, which we all know is, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. But in Corinth, the mantra was, everything is permissible for me. And we're going to run into this slogan and this ethos uh, as we go through the next few chapters of of the book. And unfortunately, this culture of comfort with sin had infiltrated the church. Uh, And so what Paul does is in chapters 5 through 7, he orders a little bit of house cleaning. And from this passage, we learn an awful lot about the character of God. Uh, We learn about what he desires for the church. And we learn about how we ourselves are to conduct ourselves and how we are to encourage and confront 
one another and why. The title of the message is A Clean House. And what we learn from this, here's the big point that I want you all to go home with, and that's this. A holy God desires a pure people. A holy God desires a pure people. So follow along with me. 1 Corinthians 5, chapter 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present... Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Sobering passage here. The first broad principle that we learn from this is that we are not to tolerate unrepentant sin in the church. Uh, Now the presenting sin here, there's no two ways about it. It's ugly. It's disgraceful. Uh, We know it to be an incestuous relationship. Most likely it is not the young man's own mother, but in fact his mother-in-law that he is continuing on this relationship with. And we can see that just simply because of the way that it's phrased. But it is absolutely an indisputable act of immorality, and it's not tolerated anywhere. Paul notes specifically that even the pagans uh, would be embarrassed by this. They don't tolerate it. It's reprehensible in any corner of the world. But one of the problems that we see in the church of Corinth here is that they had become theologically accommodating to sin. Paul says that they were proud. They were, in fact, boasting in one's sin, in a sense, in the name of grace, in the name of liberty. Grace had been distorted into licentious living, claiming liberty over outright rebellious sin. Uh, That word may be lost on you, licentious, but we are in fact living licentiously when we persist in activities that we know to be immoral and we presume upon the grace and the forgiveness of God. I don't know if you've ever talked to somebody before who maybe was caught up in sin, maybe you confronted them about it or somebody else did, and sometimes you will hear something back like this, well, I know that God will forgive me. And I want to tell you, if you yourself have ever been caught up in that kind of thinking, I want to strongly caution you that while God is willing to forgive any and every sin, his forgiveness is contingent upon repentance. What we learn here is that we need to be a repentant people, genuinely repentant from the heart. If God has such a high standard from us, if holiness is the standard and we are sinners through and through, are we not going to have to be continually a repentant people? Continually coming before him with the reality of ourselves and confessing again and again and looking to the grace and the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. We're going to have to be a repentant people. But what we find here about sinfulness itself among the people of God is that it should grieve us. Sinfulness should grieve the people of God. That is, we ought to grieve our own sin 
And we ought to grieve other people's sin, especially within the church. And we might ask the question, well, why? Why do I need to, have, why do I need to be so bothered with somebody else's sin? Why should that grieve me? Why should it bother me? What business is it of mine other people's sin? Why should I care if there's sin in a brother or sister's life? What consequence is that to me? And the answer is this, because we are a community. We are a family that together represents Jesus Christ. I think if there is an area of thin theology in the church today, it is the failure to understand the solidarity that we have within the church. That we are not a bunch of individuals, but we are a one. We are together, collectively, the people of God. We are together called by his name. We are together called for his glory and for his purposes of carrying out his mission on the earth. We are together a collective witness. We're not just a bunch of individuals. We are a one. In the same way that a coworker can damage the reputation of a company through their behavior, or in the same way that a teammate can hurt their team by becoming ineligible for grades or some other kind of behavior. So when a brother or sister in Christ is caught in unrepentant sin, it affects the whole community of Christ. It affects our reputation in the world, and most seriously, it affects the reputation of our Lord. And so sin should absolutely grieve us. And it should grieve us not just because of the outward impact of it or the outward appearance of it. It should grieve us because of the inward impact in a person's life. Sin is absolutely destructive. It harms us. It harms others. It tears down. It separates. It destroys. Sin always has a cost. We don't sin freely. One of the most insidious things about sin itself is its own deceptiveness. Sin is sometimes like a credit card. You can go around swiping this thing like crazy, right? This is great. Everything I'm buying is free. Just swipe, swipe. I'm just getting it. I'm just getting this all for free. Until the bill comes. And then we realize all of those acts of liberty and licentiousness come with a cost and interest beside. And so for all of these reasons and more, sinfulness should grieve the people of God. In fact, there's a great story in the scriptures that I came across this week in 2 Kings. Uh, you remember the King Josiah, one of Judah's final kings before her destruction. And what we find is that Judah had discovered, or, or uh, Josiah had discovered the law. Uh, the book of the law, which was found in the temple archives, and it was read to him, and he realized that he and his people had neglected the covenant of God, and they had neglected their rightful obedience before him. And we're told that he tore his clothes because he was grieved by his own people's sin. And we also find that it was, in fact, his grief for sin that stayed the judgment of God. In 2 Kings twenty-two nineteen and 20, it says this, God speaking to Josiah here, because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I have spoken against this place and its people, that they would become a curse and be laid waste. And because you tore your robes and you wept in my presence, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. 
Therefore, I will gather you to your ancestors and you will be buried in peace and your eyes will not see the disaster that I'm going to bring about. It was Josiah's rightful contrition, his remorse, and his grief for sin on behalf of the people that stayed God's hand for a season. And we see that there are really two ways out of sinfulness. There's the easy way and the hard way. And the easy way is through repentance. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse from all unrighteousness. But the hard way is through discipline or through judgment. And Paul is laying out the hard way uh, here. The next thing we see here is that unrepentant sin should be addressed in the church. People's grief should be more than just an outward attitude. It was to prompt action. In fact, the Apostle Paul gives some specific things that were to be done here. He gives three actions here. He says that you are to put this man out of your fellowship. He declares that I have already passed judgment on him in the name of the Lord. And then thirdly, this phrase here, you are to hand him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that he might be saved. Uh, And I'm going to address each of these really hard statements in just a minute here. But I want to tell you that this is a really, how do I say this without sounding really trite? (laughs) This is a tough passage. (laughs) Um, (laughs) This is a tough passage. And it's almost impossible today to do these things in our culture. Do you know that? You put somebody out of fellowship and tell people why, uh, you're going to have a lawsuit. You're going to be held liable. Churches today, uh, in order to, um, to be able to do this and to obey the word of God, when they have membership, that's one of the reasons we have membership. How's that for an invitation? You should consider membership because now we have permission to discipline you. I'm not kidding. And the discipline is important in our lives. Um, but we have membership, and, what, and within the, the bylaws, one of the things that we have there is that you are accepting of the discipline of the, of the church to correct your behavior. Um, even more troubling than all of this, though, is that even when it does happen, when you do offer the correction, if somebody doesn't like what they hear, very often they can just say, well, that's it, I'm going to another church, and I'll have a fresh start, and that'll be a lot easier. All that to say, this is difficult to practice today. Um, But with each of these actions, as hard as they are, and they raise questions, what is absolutely clear here is this, that God does not treat sin casually. He confronts it, and he desires that we do the same. Our God is holy, and he desires a pure people. Our God is holy, and he desires a pure people. If we're ever tempted to think that God is casual towards sin, then all we need to do is remind ourselves of what he has done to address it eternally and cosmically, that he offered his own son as a sacrifice to be killed, that sin would be destroyed in him. And so our God does not just gloss over or look over or look past or ignore or say, it's no big deal, I'm not really offended. What he says is, I'm so grieved in my heart of hearts for your sinfulness against me and my nature and for doing what is so destructive to you, my great creation, that I will pay for it and punish it in my son, Jesus, and kill it forever. That is our God, and that is his offense towards sin, 
and that is his desire for our own righteousness, which is for our good. Sin is never overlooked. It is ultimately paid for in Christ. We're told of the church that we are, in fact, to uphold God's judgments. Uh, Now, this gets really tricky for me because I heard a pastor say last week that judging was the prerogative of God and not the responsibility of man. But here we have Paul making a judgment and asking the people of God to do the same thing. Uh, In fact, in a verse later here in verse 12, we're specifically told, or the Corinthians are specifically told, that we are to judge those inside the church. So that gives us a big question. Which is it? (laughs) Right? Uh, We seem to have conflicting messages throughout the scripture. In Matthew 7, one of the most, probably this passage is known better to the world, to the unbelieving world, than John 3.16. Judge not, lest you be judged. They all, they got that one down. And then not, you know, not too farther or too much further on, we see, in, in fact, in John 7, 24, it says, quit judging by appearances and make a right judgment. Okay. Or in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, we have judge nothing before the appointed time, preached on this last week. But here we have in this passage, 1 Corinthians 4 and 5, I've already passed judgment. Are you not to judge those inside the church? So it brings us to a tough question. Which is it here? And I'll I'll be very honest with you. I don't feel like I have uh, come clearly to grips with this yet. I'm still wrestling this through. Uh, I I will tell you some of my observations, but I'm still trying to figure out what exactly our role is. Um, But it seems to me that when judgment is called for, number one, that it is communal. It's done corporately. In other words, it's not an interpersonal judgment. It's not me making a judgment on your life in exclusivity. But it's something that the people of God do together. They, they do with a plurality. We even see this in Matthew 18 where there are two or three witnesses. And the impression is that any one of us can be wrong, but where the people of God decide together that God's authority goes with them. And then secondly, it seems to me that what we're doing, again, is not just coming up with our own opinion and imposing it upon another, but in fact, we're upholding God's prior judgments, not imposing our rules on other people. We're upholding what God has already declared, and we're doing that corporately. And these seem to be the judgments that I I see being carried out through the Scripture, something that we're called to do. But I'm still studying that, and I hope that God gives me more clarity on it. But we are to uphold God's judgments within the church. The second big point we see here is this. Boy, now it gets really stinging as if it hasn't been hard already. We're told to remove unrepentant sinners from fellowship. Verse 5. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that it may be uh, a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I read this, I think the first blush reading just tells me, this just sounds mean. It just sounds unkind. And I thought, I thought as Christians we were supposed to be nice and loving. Uh, it even seems counterproductive, right? How does removing an unrepentant sinner from Christian fellowship draw them any closer to the Lord? 
Aren't we, in fact, if we were to do so, wouldn't we be removing the very lifelines that they have? It doesn't seem right. And while the act of disfellowship sounds cruel here, we're going to find out that it is, in fact, a remedial action, not a punitive one. In other words, it is to correct behavior, not just to punish behavior. Ultimately, it is to bring about a proper change. And there's two reasons for this. First of all, we're to remove unrepentant sinners from fellowship. First of all, for the sake of repentance and restoration. And we're going to explore this one first. This phrase here in verse 5, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. It's a troubling phrase. But if we rightly understand it, we can actually see its beauty, if I can say that. Handing this man over to Satan means that the unrepentant offender is to be disfellowshipped and to be removed from the protective covering and of the protective influence of the church and put out into the world, which is the domain of Satan where he rules and reigns. They're to do that for a correction in this person's life. The second part here, the destruction of of the flesh here is not so that the individual out in the world removed from the protective influence of the church, it's not so that they would themselves be destroyed. It's so that this fleshly grip in their life, this unrepentant sin, this sin that is nagging them, that they are nursing so that that would be destroyed in them. You see, it's for their good. In other words, this isn't just a cruel action, but the second half of uh, verse 5 says it very clear. It says that so that their spirit would be saved on the day of the Lord. It's so that they might be, that the sin that is in them might be purged out of them. And if it's not happening within the church, then in a sense, let's see if it happens in the world. The ultimate purpose of church discipline is to bring about repentance and to restore a brother or sister to God and to his people. Um, In another sense, disfellowshipping someone for their unrepentant sin is a way of allowing them to run headlong into their own disobedience, that they might discover the inherent destructiveness of sin and that it would show itself and change their course. In a sense, it is letting them go all of the way the direction they are already headed. If I could sort of paraphrase this in my own words, this section, I think it would be something like this. If you are loving your sin, then go live under its yoke and see how ill-fitting it really is. Um, as a kid, I can remember, and I'm sure many of you have the same story. Uh, I was I, easily uh, jealous of my neighbors or, uh, or other kids that would get things that I might not have or have liberties or opportunities that I didn't get. And I can remember frequently telling you know, my mom something like, well, Billy's parents let him do such and such. And you know the retort, right? Because you all got the same thing. Yeah, well, why don't you go live with Billy's parents? <laughs> right? Am I alone? Anybody else hear this one? This is st- no one else is going to claim this. this is, I'm sorry, this is standard. I know that it is. Sure, why don't you go live with Billy's parents? And then it's, you're, it's, you're, your complaint is sort of brought all the way home and you realize... Yeah, as much as I might want the one liberty, there's no way I would exchange the position in my family with his to have that liberty. And I think Paul is doing the same kind of thing here. Uh, Go and live in your sin. Live under its yoke. You weren't made for this. It will show itself to be ill-fitting. Also, disfellowshipping or excommunicating someone here, it seems really extreme, but... I guess I would also say there's a common sense element to it as well. In other words, if the, if the fellowship and the influence of the church is having no cleansing effect in the believer's life, 
then we have to ask, well, what good is that relationship? In other words, what is the point of maintaining a relationship that has no redemptive influence? Um, And I think as the church, we're confronted with something here. We, the church, are confronted with the quality of our own Christian community. In other words, if the removal of Christian community is to be such a striking consequence in the unrepentant person's life that it would bring them to their senses just as the prodigal son did, then one of the things that this underscores for me is at least the importance of Christian community. And and, and it just holds it right up for me, right in my face to say, how good is the Christian community you're offering to people that they would miss it if it was removed? Um, In other words, so beautiful, so life-giving, so encouraging, and so necessary is Christian community that its loss would be too great and in contrast, the nagging sin and that fleshly hold would be decidedly renounced. And so again, that makes me think about the, the quality of Christian community that I'm extending to others. If community is to be a leverage for repentance, then it had better be really good. And that's a message to all of us. Um, overall, what we're to see here is that removing those who are unrepentant in their sin and refuse to change course that even this difficult action of disfellowshipping, it's not just punitive, it's not just punishment, but it's primarily for repentance and restoration. But there is a second effect as well. It is also for the sake of the purity and the protection of the church. And that's what we get in the second part here. In other words, we're not just the community center. We are, as the church, God's people, his temple. Um, In the same way that we would lovingly discipline our own kids by sending them to their room uh, when they're acting out. I mean, we do so so that they would change course and change heart. But we also do so to protect the rest of the family from their nasty behavior. We shouldn't all have to continue to be um, hurt by the way that they're behaving. So go to your room and take that behavior there with you. And so there is an element here of protection for the rest of the family that we see in this act. Um, and so this, the impact of such a painful decision, it's, it's not just for the benefit of the unrepentant sinner, although primarily, but it's also for the purity and the protection of the church and of the church's witness. And Paul uses a great illustration in this. He sort of borrows from one of their own festivals, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the practice at this time in sort of commemorating Passover uh, is that they would go through their house and they would take the leavened bread uh, out of the house and essentially start over. Y- y- maybe you all are familiar with a sourdough start. Maybe you've got one in your fridge. And you know how it works. You keep this thing alive and you add a little bit of yeast and a little bit of dough and I think a little bit of water. Clearly I don't do this. Uh, but, but the old batch can basically take on these new ingredients and, and can grow. The old batch can sort of influence these new things and, and you can grow this thing and sort of keep it alive over time. And Paul uses this illustration in the life of, uh, of the Corinthians here. He's saying, for those of you who celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread and, and you go through your own home and you remove that old unleavened bread out of your, or leavened bread out of your house uh, and you start fresh, so to speak, so do we need to do this in the church. In other words, leaven throughout the scripture is frequently referenced as, as a matter of influence. You can take this piece 
of love and dough and add it to these things and it will influence the other. The one will influence the other. And that's the point that Paul is making here. He's saying you need to have a pure church because the influence of sin here will influence the rest of the batch. And we can't mix the two together. So there is a protection and a purity for the church itself. And so Paul appeals to this this practice known to the church here as an illustration for cleaning house of unrepentant sin so that it will not spread. And one of the things that I think we see in this too is that the character and the nature of our God has not changed. He is a holy God. He has been since the first revelation. And our holy God desires a pure people. You think about it so much so that he developed a sacrificial uh, system so that sin could be dealt with. And even that system pointed ultimately to Jesus Christ where sin could be permanently dealt with in the once for all sacrifice. Our God is holy. He deals with sin. He wants a pure people. And thirdly here we see that the church is to have a different posture towards different people. Um, Yeah, let's go to the passage here. I'll talk about it in a second. Verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. I'll get an amen to that. Uh, But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Uh, One of the things I love about this is that Paul basically references this previous letter. Uh, Now, what we're reading here is 1 Corinthians, right? But he's referring to a letter that came prior, which tells us, well, we we don't have this one. And I actually love the fact that Paul identifies that there was some kind of misunderstanding in a previous writing. It's just reassuring to me, you know. Uh, These kinds of little quirks in Scripture actually comfort me. The fact that awkward things like an incestuous relationship are addressed, uh, or that a letter uh, is maybe sort of lost from preservation, or that people misunderstood the contents of that letter, uh, or that the disciples do embarrassing things, uh, or that there's shameful figures in the family tree, I love this about the scriptures. Because what it tells me is that all of these little wrinkles are here, and to me, they actually authenticate the reliability of the scriptures. They show us that it is a message uh, that is not just a Pollyanna book, right? It's not just a Disney gospel. These aren't caricatures. This is a real faith for real people in a real world. And when we read these little wrinkles, to me, it just it smacks of authenticity, And it seems as though, yes, this speaks to us. But what Paul basically introduces to us here is what might look like a double standard in terms of how we deal with people in their sinful situation. And I'm really glad that it's here because I think sometimes Christians can be too simplistic. You know, sort of like the mechanic who's got one tool, it's a hammer. And that's how they address every problem. I think Christians can be the same way. You know, when when somebody is dealing with sin, we, send, we seem to have one reaction, anger. That's it. But in fact, what we're presented with here is actually a, a fairly nuanced position. Ministry is messy. 
We have to respond to different people in different instances in different ways. And Paul basically says, don't be surprised by the immorality of the world. I'm sometimes, it's almost comical to me that Christians get so up in arms about the immorality of the world. I don't think, why would you expect better? These people don't have a relationship with the Lord. They don't live under the standard of the scripture. They don't have the Holy Spirit within them. They don't have a purpose on this earth except for to live for self and its pleasures. Well, why? I think sometimes we ought to expect more immorality from the world than we do. Don't be surprised at the immorality of the world, he says. But secondly, don't tolerate immorality within the church. While all of us as sinners, the reality that comes home to us here is that none of us should persist in a sinful course. Calling oneself a Christian and persisting in any kind of immorality in life gives a degrading and false testimony of Christ. And if the world sees this kind of hypocrisy and they see a church tolerant of it, they will assume that we approve of such behavior and the name of Christ is dishonored. Rather, we are to exercise spiritual discipline over professing believers within the church. The exercise of this judgment is not personal or interpersonal. It is to be a corporate judgment in the name of Jesus. It's done collectively by the witness of the church and for the witness and the integrity of the witness of the church. It is the church upholding the prior judgments of God that a brother or sister has obviously transgressed. God has already made the judgment and it's his people simply upholding it in the lives of others, keeping a clean house for the name of the Lord. I love this quote by Craig Blomberg here. I have it in your notes for you. It says this, a holy congregation which graciously cleanses its own house to preserve its purity, but which doesn't expect the same standards of obedience from the unregenerate can profoundly impact an unholy world. Um, one last thing that I want to bring you to, and then we're going to respond together in this way, is when we see such a high standard for the church, that we are to be a holy and a pure church, uh, reflecting the nature of our God who is himself holy, and we know that each of us deals with and struggles with sin, then we as a people have to continually come to the practice of repentance and confession and asking for forgiveness. Wow. I would go as far as to say this. This might be controversial, but oh, we're already in the weeds today. So, uh, I, think the, I think the Catholic Church is a lot closer to dealing with repentance as it ought to than is the evangelical church. We don't need a priest to forgive us our sins. No person forgives us of our sins except God alone. And we can go directly to him. But I do admire in the Catholic Church that they keep the discipline of repentance and confession alive and well. The evangelical church has missed it. We don't practice it. And we should. Continually, we should be introspective and looking at our own heart and saying, Lord, look at my heart and see if there's anything offensive in me, right? And if there is, I should confess it. I should repent it, repent of it. I just put a, pl- a plow on my four-wheeler uh, a couple weeks ago. And I'm finding that it's a lot easier if I plow regularly 
than if I wait. If I take on two or three inches at a time, no problem. If I wait until it's 18 inches, there's a problem. And so, so is it true in our own life. And so I want to give you an opportunity right now in this service. Uh, I'm going to ask Pastor Josh if he'll come up here and, and uh, just give us some space. He's going to play for us. What I want to happen here, what I would invite you into, I would invite you into, into a time of introspection to look at your life and say, Lord, is there unrighteousness in me? Is there unconfessed sin in me? Am I living licentiously? Have I become theologically accommodating to sin? Am I ignoring what I know to be wrong? Am I grieving you and your name and your house? Then take time right now, come before the Lord. Ask him to reveal to you what you need to confess. Confess it to him and then I'm going to ask you to go one more step further. If God brings something to mind and you do confess it and you do repent of it, then I'm going to ask you to go to a brother and sister sometime this week. And speak aloud your sin that you confess to the Lord that he has forgiven. Uh, James 5 tells us that we are to confess our sins to one another. And to pray for each other. Because the prayers of a righteous man avail much. Let me pray for us and then Josh if you would lead, lead in. Father. We are not as we should be. While we have been justified before you through faith in Jesus, we have not yet been sanctified. We do not want to be, Lord, vessels of impurity in your church. We do not want to be, Lord, an unrighteous church. We do not want to tolerate sin. We do not want to grieve your name or your reputation. We want to be clean vessels, clean hands for your witness. Holy Spirit, now I pray that you would work and move among your people. Convict us of sin and invite us to bring it to our Lord and Savior, Jesus.